So uh, we are going through the lectionary. That's sort of what we're doing. Um, and today's reading uh, comes after last week's. It's in 1 Corinthians again. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Um, the context, if you look back from about 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 5, 6, 7, into 8, Paul is trying to address the, the Christian churches in the city of Corinth. Uh, not really a Christian area, right? You've got a small pocket of Christians uh, in a very Greek-speaking area. And he's trying to address various moral issues, whether it's how to handle conflicts within the church, what about sexual morality? Um, what can we and shouldn't we eat? What about circumcision? All of these various disputes that are occurring, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian and how should we live? Right. So that's sort of the context for uh, Corinthians chapter 8 here. So this is Paul writing to the Christian church at Corinth. Uh, the topic is about, is it okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, Greek gods, right, uh, non-Christian gods, and there were many of these places set up around. And of course, in the Old Testament, there are clear laws not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so this is like a, a thing going on here. So this is Paul's comment. Now, concerning meat that has been sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. <laughs> if only that were true, that we all had knowledge. But, okay, we all have knowledge. Uh, knowledge makes people arrogant. But love builds people up. If anyone thinks they know something, they don't yet know as much as they think. But if someone loves God, then they are known by God. So there's this juxtaposition here between knowledge seeking knowledge in a way that makes me feel superior, right? Arrogant. Versus love and love of God and being known by God. Me knowing versus being known by God, right? So concerning the actual food involved in these sacrifices to false gods or to idols, we know that an idol, a false god, isn't anything in this world and that there is no God except for the one true God, Yahweh. Granted, there are so-called gods, lowercase g, in heaven and on earth that other people believe in, as there are many gods and lords, right? Whether it be the gods that Egypt worships or the Babylonians or whatnot. However, for us Christians, for us believers, there is but one God, God of all things, in whom we belong, in whom we move and have our being. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things exist through Christ, and we too live through Christ. But not everybody knows this. Some are eating this food as though it were really sacrificed to a true God, because they used to worship this idol until now now that they've converted to Christianity, but they still, this God still has power over them, right? Their conscience is weak because it has been damaged. 
Food will not bring us close to God. We're not missing out if we don't eat. And we don't have any advantage if we do eat. But watch out, or else this freedom of yours might be a problem for those who have a weaker faith. Suppose someone sees you eating in an idol's temple. Won't the person with a weak conscience or a weak faith be encouraged to eat the meat sacrificed to false gods also? The weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your strength, by your knowledge. You sin against Christ if you sin against your brothers and sisters and hurt their faith in this way. This is why if food causes the downfall of my brother or sister, I won't eat meat ever again because I may cause my brother or sister to fall. Okay, this seems weird in our context because uh, there aren't actual places set up to worship gods where there's food that's been offered to them that can actually be eaten, right? That's not our context. But this is the context for first century Corinth, right? Uh, there are many Greek gods. There are many different religions happening in the Greek-speaking world. And there are places set up where you can go worship those gods and deliver food and whatnot. And so Christians are trying to figure out, are we allowed to do this? What's the rule? How do we figure this out? Paul suggests, if you have strong faith, eating this meat will not hurt you. You know there's only one true God. You know these idols are nothing. They're not real. So the food does not cause you to stumble, does not harm you. So Paul's suggesting for those with strong faith, those that are connected to God in, in clear and passionate ways, it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to lead you astray. But there are many who are new Christians, who have a, a, a weaker faith, who are beginners, who don't have that connection to God. And for them, this would cause them to stumble. Right? So what I want to talk about today is the messiness of Christian ethics. Christian morality, right? So as Christians, we care deeply, how should we live? How should we act? How, what's supposed to govern our behavior, right? Like this is like a fundamental human question. We want to know. And then how am I supposed to raise my children? And how do I encourage them to act and live, right? What am I supposed to do as a professor? And how am I supposed to guide my students or the congregation? For all of you, you have friends and family. It's the same thing. What, what is the right thing to do? And how do we know it? Morality itself has stages of development, and I want to talk about these briefly, right? At one level, at a very early level, we have something like rules, and they're for children. We create a rule, like the Ten Commandments. Don't cheat on your wife, and don't kill, um, right? Obey the Sabbath. And these rules make us feel safe, and stable. They're very black and white. They're binary. You follow them or you don't. And we can all take a big like sigh of relief and say, oh, good. Morality, when it comes to Christians, is based on this clear set of do's and do nots. 
this very clear set of rules we're supposed to follow. And then we pass these on to our children uh, and we're done. The problem with this, of course, is twofold, I think. One is, when we have a rule-based morality, we become like the Pharisees. We become very judgmental. We become very dogmatic. Uh, we create all kinds of church trauma. If any of you have ever broken the rules, uh, Christians are often quick to remind you of that and make you feel lots of shame. So there's this problem with a rule-based morality in that it, it makes us feel arrogant. We, we know, we have knowledge of the moral law. Knowledge makes us arrogant and we, we lord this over others. The second problem, of course, is that life is way too messy for some clear set of moral rules to follow. Life is way too messy for any set of rules. So like the Ten Commandments, do not kill. That's awesome. What about home invasion? What about an intruder in my home and protecting my family? Right? Do not lie. That's a great rule. I think we should follow that for the most part. However, do I always lead with brutal honesty? Would that be kind to my friends to just always say what was on my mind? Like, it's more complicated than just some rule. Like a college student goes home for Thanksgiving. They're newly committed to being a vegetarian. But grandma just spent nine hours cooking a turkey. Is that the right time to let grandma know that meat is murder? Probably not. Life is messy. And we've got these conflicting values that happen all the time. All the time. I am responsible for keeping my family safe. But I'm also responsible to use what I have to help others. And that's going to be a risk. And it's going to put my family in certain places of danger from time to time. And I've got to figure out how to navigate that messy world. And no rule is going to help me. Rules flatten the moral landscape. But I think God wants to elevate the moral landscape. And it's going to be messy. And it's going to be complicated. The rule is don't heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus does heal on the Sabbath. He breaks the rule because he sees the face of the leper and they need healing. Right? He sees the pain of the person lost in demon possession and knows they need to be delivered. And so he pushes the rule aside for, 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 for a higher good or a higher value. So Christians have to live in this messy world where we have some moral rules, but really... We have to transcend those rules to a place where we have to know when we, when we put them aside. And so Paul looks at believers and says, this rule about not eating meat sacrificed to, to idols, that doesn't apply to you if you have strong faith. You know that idols are not real. They're nothing. There's only one true God. The rule doesn't really apply to you. But there's a higher principle involved, Paul says. There's something beyond that that you need to consider. And that is, how will your actions impact those with weaker faith than you? With beginners? With the young? Will it send a bad message? Will it lead them astray? Your concern, your moral concern is not the rule. Your moral concern is the hearts of those who might be led astray by your action. Care about them. I see the same thing in Jesus. The rule is don't heal on the Sabbath. But when Jesus sees the face of the hurting other, he puts the rule aside 
for the sake of those who need help most. His heart, his concern is kindness to the poor and the marginalized and the excluded. His allegiance is to them, not to the rule. I see this logic at play a lot in the world. I think about NNU or the Nazarene prohibition against drinking. As a rule, it seems to me somewhat silly, right? Scripture has Jesus turning water into wine, drinking wine around the table at the Last Supper with his fellow disciples. It feels like drinking in and of itself is not the problem. However, if our focus is not on some rule, but rather, and this is how Nazarenes began, we should be ministering to those who struggle with alcohol. Having it in our homes might not hurt us, but it would certainly hurt and be a stumbling block, an obstacle to those we're trying to love, we're trying to minister to, we're trying to care for. And our concern is not the rule, our concern is how our actions hurt them. So I want you to consider a couple of things when you think about how we might govern ourselves as a Christian community. Rules can be helpful guidelines, but they're very limited. For me, the key question, for, for me, for all of us, is something like this. What is the why behind what you're doing? What is the motivation? I want to be motivated by love and not fear, by forgiveness and not bitterness. I want to be motivated by second chances and redemption and not punishment or retribution. I want to be motivated by generosity and not greed. I want to be motivated by like risking for the Lord rather than protecting myself and my safety in anxiety. Paul's motive is not the rule. Paul's motive is how will weaker Christians view your actions? Consider them first. They're more important than eating this meat. If it meant a brother and sister would stumble, Paul says, I'll never eat meat again because that's my concern. I'm allowed to, to eat meat here, but what is it to the believers that are watching me? Jesus puts the rule aside because his ultimate concern are those that need his healing that need His loving presence. That's what drives Him and motivates Him. And in each case, the motive, not surprisingly, who are the least of these? Who are those with weak faith? Who are those struggling? Who are those in need of assistance? Our motive, our priority, is to place them first. To lift them up. If that is our heart, if that is our motive, then um, I think we're going to have the freedom to transcend a lot of rules. We create a community suffocated in grace. <laughs> that might be the wrong word, but saturated. So when I, when I went to the meeting this past week about the move of Interfaith Sanctuary to the potential move, uh, right here on State Street, there were, so, there were a lot of neighbors and I could feel their concern. I could feel their just anxiety like, 
How are you going to keep them out of our parks? I have children. What about this stretch of Greenbelt? There's property values to consider. You know, there might, where, where, where are all the cars and RVs going to be parked? I mean, these are like legitimate. I, I don't have any judgment on that. These are legitimate concerns. I completely understand why there's a reaction to like, what's going to happen to our neighborhood if 300 homeless people, maybe more, right, end up in this community? For me, as I'm reading this passage, I continue to come back to this conviction over and over. What, what, is, what should my motive be as someone who lives in this community, as someone who pastors a church right next door? I have some of these same concerns. I have young children that go to elementary school in this area. I, I use the green belt. I have my kids ride their bikes alone all the time, go down to the dollar store, head around all over the place, right? I, I understand these concerns. But again, who are the most desperate in this situation? Who are the most marginalized? Who have the smallest voice? It's the homeless families living in their car. It's the individuals with mental illness on the streets with nowhere to go. It's the people trapped in cycles of addiction that have broken all their relationships. They are the most vulnerable. They are the ones hurting. No community wants them to come to their neighborhood. No one. And so I'm moved to try and endorse it, to support it, to give voice to them. There are going to be problems. There are, it's going to be messy. There are going to be obstacles. But what is my why? What is my motive? I don't want it to be about me or my safety or my family or my property value. I desperately want it to be the voice of God that says, turn to those who need it most. That's your drive. That's your motive. That's how you elevate the moral landscape. And I could be completely wrong about this. Because there is no rule to follow here. There are clashing values that all matter. There are family values, community values, values of safety. There's all kinds of values that are clashing. And as humans, we're tasked with trying to prioritize the goods. Which of these values that we care about, which of these values that are so important takes precedence? That's the messy world we live in. And it's not easy to navigate. But I want you to do introspection. What motivates you? What is your why? At the beginning, Paul contrasts knowledge with love. And I want to read this again. I want to, I want to end here. I want to talk about this briefly. Paul says, We know that we all have knowledge to some extent. Knowledge makes people arrogant, but love builds people up. If anyone thinks they know something, they don't know as much as they think. But if someone loves God, then they are known by God. And this makes me think immediately of the Genesis story. Adam and Eve have two trees in the garden. There is the tree of life, and there is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
God says, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there seems to be this distinction from the very beginning. Do I want to be like God, having knowledge of good and evil, that I might be arrogant, that I might lord my moral rules over others, that I might become a black and white, right and wrong, oppressive force because of that knowledge? Or instead of that, will I choose the tree of life, the tree of love, the tree that causes me to love God and thus be known by God? I feel like all of my moral knowledge that might lead to judgment that might lead to wall building and division has to come crumbling down, right? These rules that divide, that Paul's trying to address about food, about circumcision, about who's clean or not, all that comes crumbling down that, might, that what might be elevated is the tree of life, that what might be elevated is not that knowledge but a heart committed to love of God, of neighbor, of selfless action, of being broken and poured out for the world, a love focused on those that need us, that need our voice, that need our support, that need our compassion, that need our presence more than anyone else, that we might elevate those hills of grace and forgiveness and kindness, that those would become our why, those would, be our, they would become our motive, right? Those would be our call into a world that desperately needs us. But the fact of the matter is, it's messy. And every situation, right, has a clashing of values that makes it very hard to adjudicate. And so in the end, I think we need the wisdom and discernment of God. My prayer is that you might take the time to think through your why and your motive. What drives you? What moves you? Where is God calling you? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful. I'm grateful to you for the example of Paul, the example of Jesus, the example of so many in Scripture that set aside the rules for the sake of love and grace and mercy. I'm grateful, Lord, that in the midst of a chaotic and messy world, your Spirit is here to give us guidance and wisdom that you give us a call and set our feet on a path. I pray that you would continue to reveal to us what drives us and what motivates us, and I pray that those things would be the fruits of the Spirit, that they would be faith, hope, and love. Give us strength and courage for enough faith for one more day, Lord. We're grateful to you. Amen. If you would please uh, join us for our closing song.